Hello and welcome to Wangaratta Baptist Church. My name is Pastor Aaron. I'm so thrilled that you've decided to join with us today for this message. This message was recorded live at one of our Sunday morning services, which are on every Sunday at 10 a.m. right here in Wangaratta. If you're here uh, in town on a Sunday, then why not come along and join with us in fellowship with other believers as we open the word together and hear from the scriptures. But if you are connecting with us online, don't let this replace uh, coming to a, a local church. Uh, they are vitally important for the growth of all believers. And so get along to your local church. But if not, then, then at least help. let this be a supplement to help you in your walk with the Lord. And so we do believe that the, the scriptures are the inerrant word of God and they're here to train us and equip us. And so we will be speaking and opening up the scriptures together. So, so get your Bibles out and follow along. And I trust that this message that you are watching today will really encourage you and inspire you and help you understand the hope that we do have in Jesus Christ. May it be a blessing to you. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Judges tells the story of the downward spiral towards apostasy of the nation of Israel. Through this downward spiral, we are given glimpses of hope and faithfulness through some, some of the 12 judges. But each judge is worse than the previous. And as we progress through the book, so does the depravity of the nation of Israel, and even of the judges themselves. This is the story of the first 16 chapters of the book of Judges. We then come to chapter 17. There are no more judges. And this one phrase is repeated throughout these last chapters. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In chapter 17, we come across the account of Micah the, and the Levite. Now, Micah, he was from a wealthy household. His mother, in fact, was very wealthy because Micah stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. And that was a fortune big enough that you could live on for your entire life. Micah heard his mother then pronounce a curse upon whoever stole the money. And so he comes clean with the fact, hey, mum, I stole the money. Here's the money back. At which point the mother then decides to bless Micah, hoping that maybe the curse will be cancelled out by the blessing, probably, you know. Um, and, and his mother then dedicates that fortune to the Lord. So she dedicates the fortune that was stolen to the Lord. How lovely of her except she then only gives 200 of those pieces of silver to make an image to be used in worship. And so we see that Micah's mother steals from God just as Micah stole from her. Micah had evidently learned dishonesty at home. Micah and his mother, they chose to disregard God's law prohibiting graven images and idols, further mark of the whole nation in apostasy, ignoring God. 
They set up their own temple at their own home. They make their own priestly ephod and they set up their own idol. And Micah even ordains his own son as a priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was the reason Micah could get away with such a flagrant, disobedient response and behaviour. Even though there was not yet a human king, God reigned as Israel's monarch from heaven. That was what he has established. And since his people paid no attention to his authority by disregarding his law, Israel was practically speaking without a king. Kings enforce standards, but in Israel, the people were setting their own standards. They did what was fit in their own eyes. Then a man from the priestly tribe of Levi arrives on his way to another town. He was not a priest, but it was from the tribe of the priests, the Levites. And so this young Levite, in the middle of his move somewhere else, uh, meets Micah, who, who he really wants to upgrade his priest. How much better an upgrade could you get than an actual Levite to be your priest? And so he asks him to become a father, which is a, a spiritual leader, an advisor and an elder. He asks him to be a father and a priest to his family. And to be called a father was a really great honour in that culture. And since Micah also promised to support him financially, the Levite agreed to this rather cushy arrangement. And so we see Micah personifying the phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A man from a rich family sets up his own temple, employs his own priest and believes God would bless him in his materialism. This is Judges at the end. That's chapter 17. In chapter 18, the writer of Judges introduces the tribe of Dan, who had failed to take the land promised to them by eradicating the Amorites. And they were unhappy that they didn't have their land, and so they set out looking for better land to live. They send five spies to scout out the area who come across Micah's temple and his Levite. And after learning what he was doing there, the Danites explained their mission and asked the Levite priest to inquire from God whether their journey would be successful. You know what the really stupid thing about this is? The tabernacle, the actual tabernacle, was a mere couple of miles away. Micah himself could have gone to the tabernacle to inquire of the Lord, but no, sets up his own house of God, his own priest, his own system of worship, even his own idols. And these um, Danites who come to find out God's favour, they find Micah and his priest and his idols and inquire of him rather than going a few miles over to the actual tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. That's pretty ludicrous. They should have gone there. But the Levite, perhaps even wearing Micah's ephod, announced God's approval of their mission. Now, 
Uh, you've heard many people announcing God's plans, haven't you? You've heard many people saying, this is the will of God. This is the will of the Lord. God told me I should date you. <laughs> you ever come across that one? If you do, steer clear, young people. <laughs> but that's what's sort of going on here. The Levite, it's doubtful God actually spoke to him given the relationship that he had with God. And so the priest, um, uh, sorry, so the spies set off back to the, their tribe, the Danites, to report that they've found some great land and they reckon they should, should make a, a go of it. And so the Danites, they then send 600 warriors to take the land. But first they go to Micah's house, steal his idols and his priest to go with them. Because of course, this Levite priest who said, yes, we'll be successful, they want him with them, don't they? Micah chases after them, but when he realises that these 600 warriors were a little bit too much of a force for him to contend with, he goes home empty-handed with nothing left. The Danites take the city that they uh, had scattered out, killing all the inhabitants, burning it to the ground. Now, why could they not have done this to the place that God said is your inheritance and actually done this and defeated the Amorites? Like that would have been the smart thing to do, do what God tells you to do. No, no, no. They chose their own city. They chose their own area that they wanted to settle. They chose their own way. And they are victorious. The Danites take the city, kill all the inhabitants, burn it to the ground, then rebuild it and establish the city as their own, which remains the home of Dan for generations. And they take the exiled priest, um, sorry, and, and the priest uh, and his descendants actually minister as the priest um, in that city until the exile. That's how established this becomes. Now, these accounts of Micah and the Danites teach us important lessons. First of all, we should obey God's word, not disregard it as Micah did. We should serve God faithfully as he directs, not advance ourselves at the cost of disobedience as the Levite did. And we should also wait for God and engage our spiritual enemy, not rush ahead or run away to establish our own security as the Danites did. In those days, there were no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You know, this downward spiral continues to not just include apostasy, which is abandoning God, but Israelite society decays along with it as we come to a very concerning accounts of the failures of common decency, sexual depravity, violence against women, civil war, and the kidnapping of 200 young women to be taken as wives. That rounds out the rest of the book of Judges. So if you want some, uh, some light reading, don't read it. If you want some heavy, like challenging, like concerning, like what on earth is going on here sort of afternoon, go for it. Yeah, it's quite a challenge. But it really shows us how fully the nation of Israel had descended into selfishness and depravity. 
What we see in the last chapters of Judges is what happens when God's people fail to acknowledge his sovereign authority over their lives. In chapters 17 and 18, the result was religious apostasy, idolatry. And in chapters 19 through 21, the results are moral degeneracy, immorality, political disintegration, anarchy, and social chaos, injustice. Idolatry, immorality, anarchy, injustice. This is how the book of Judges ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does this sound familiar to you? Isn't this also the very world that we are living in today? Doesn't this describe our society too? The interesting thing is that none of what is laid out in these last chapters of the book of Judges have anything to do with idolatry or Baal worship. There's no outside forces in that regard. It all begins with individuals ignoring God's law, doing what was right in their own eyes, and it led a whole nation into moral collapse. The Israelites needed no judge or king to lead them into apostasy or battle. They did it on their own. And so we again see the principal theme of the book of Judges personified again, failure through compromise because of selfishness. And you know, no book in the Old Testament offers the modern church as telling a mirror as this book. You know, from the jealousies of the Ephraimites to the religious pragmatism of the Danites, from the paganism of Gideon to the self-centeredness of Samson and from the unmanliness of Barak to the violence against women by the men of Gibeah, all of the marks of Canaanite degeneracy, you can actually see evident in the church and its leaders today. Not this one. <laughs> this book is a wake-up call for churches at death's door in their own selfish pursuits. Instead of heeding the call of truly godly leaders and letting Jesus Christ be Lord of the church, Everywhere, congregations around our nation and world and their leaders do what is right in their own eyes. And so it is important that we heed the warnings of judges and continue to place Jesus as Lord of the church rather than just doing what we think is right in our own eyes. Our reason for existing as a church is to bring glory to God and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ to our region. We are not here for the glory of man or the accolades of his people or other people. We exist to bring glory to God as we introduce people to Jesus, bringing them the great hope that is found in the gospel. The book of Judges illustrates both God's justice and his grace. Justice in punishing sin and grace in forgiving sin. I mean, really, the book of Judges, if you think about it, it ends with a miracle. How 
after chapters 19 through 21, and indeed how after the whole book, how on earth is Israel still in existence? That surely is a miracle. How does Israel still exist after all of this depravity? It can only be because God wished to dwell in the midst of his people in spite of their sin. It can only be because God's grace is far more tenacious than his people's depravity and insists on still holding them fast even in their sinfulness and their stupidity. It is only by God's grace. Philip Holmes in an article about grace writes this, We know the scriptures proclaim that God is gracious, but many struggle to believe it. Others wonder what grace actually looks like. If we take seriously the righteousness of God and the heinousness of our sin every day, we might find ourselves asking God, do you still love me? Or why are you so patient with me? Or why haven't you killed me for what I've done? As our hatred for and awareness of our sin increases, we desperately need a biblical view of the grace of God. We need the scriptures to paint a clear picture of who God is and how much he loves us in Christ Jesus. We need to see the God of the scriptures who is so gracious, it blows our minds, bringing us to tears and repentance. I love that. God is so gracious, it blows our minds. That's how amazing the grace of God is that we also desperately need in our selfish world. In Micah chapter 6, verse 6 to 7, this is a different Micah to the Micah of Judges, the Israelites have a warped view of who God is. In verses 1 through 5, of chapter 6, the Lord offers a tender rebuke saying, what have I done to you? And he reminds them of how he delivered them out of the hand of Egypt and other righteous acts that he's done on their behalf. And then their response in verses 6 to 7 is dumbfoundingly painful, but it's also familiar. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn in my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Instead of responding with gratitude for what God has done for them, they expose themselves. Whether they intended to or not, they paint this picture of God that makes him seem demanding, cruel and impossible to satisfy. Their view of God doesn't line up with the reality. And in one sense, I think we're all pretty familiar with that view of God because we've been right there at times too, haven't we? Do you ever have the view of God that he's like some kind of angry father sitting on the throne, shocked and appalled that we've sinned? A picture of God who's impatient, angry and completely disappointed in us. This is the picture that the Israelites display of God in Micah. 
And part of how we view God's grace is often birthed out of our experience with each other. Whether it's a parent, a relative, or our general view of mankind, our experience with sinful and broken people affect our view of our holy and righteous God. We're unacquainted with grace, mercy, and truth that's untainted by sin. Every experience of grace and mercy that we have experienced through other people has still been tainted with sin. Humanly speaking, though, though we've experienced grace, we've never met a person that embodied grace perfectly. God, however, is a holy and righteous God, completely void of sin and full of goodness and love. He's never made a mistake and can do anything but fail. He is perfect in all his ways. If he were a doctor, he'd never lose a patient. If he were a lawyer, he'd never lose a case. If he were an athlete, he'd never lose a race. There is no moral compass that could measure how upright and blameless he is. Nevertheless, when we, his sinful and rebellious prodigal children, wallow in our sin and grieve his spirit, he calls us to repentance with open and loving arms saying, come home, child. He's not ignorant of all the ways we've sinned against him. He knows everything we've ever done and is able to stomach it. His knowledge of who we really are will never hinder his love for us. He's even aware of the evil behind our righteous deeds. The intimacy by which the Lord knows us but is able to lovingly embrace us as his children is truly supernatural. God's grace is mind-blowing. Throughout the scriptures, the message of this grace is proclaimed. Our God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. That's what Exodus 34, 6-7 tells us. This grace is distinct to the Christian faith. No other religion emphasizes divine grace the way the Bible does. And so to understand how utterly mind-blowing God's grace really is, we need to read more about it from his own very words. So do that. And do that with me now. 2 Timothy 1.9 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in, his, in suffering for the gospel of the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Romans 5.8 but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's grace 
is mind-blowing. Titus 2, 11 to 14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God's grace is mind-blowing. Romans 3, 23 to 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God's grace is mind-blowing. Ephesians 2, 8-9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Say it with me now. God's grace is mind-blowing. Romans 6, 14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. God's grace is mind-blowing. Ephesians 2, 4-5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has for us, in which he loved us, even when we're dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God's grace is mind-blowing. Titus 3, 5 to 7 says, He saved us. That's, that's pretty good. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God's grace is mind-blowing. This is the grace of God. This is the God of grace that still works in our world today. This is how he continues to demonstrate his grace towards us today. The greatest antidote to selfishness is gratitude for God's grace. Gratitude for God's unmerited favour that has been poured out for us, which is mind-blowing. And there is hope in our world that is filled with idolatry, immorality, anarchy and injustice. And that hope is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But you might be thinking, what change can I bring though, Aaron? to our world that is filled with the fruit of selfishness, to our world that is filled with idolatry, immorality, anarchy and injustice. Aaron, what can I do? Well, it's probably true that you in and of yourself, by yourself, cannot change the entire world. But you can change one person's entire world by introducing them to Jesus, by introducing them to God's grace, which is 
mind-blowing. The imperative has never been stronger to reach out with a message of hope that is in Christ Jesus. If this book of Judges has told us anything, it is that we all need God's mind-blowing grace and our world needs it too. We can't sit and be comfortable with just ourselves as being a Christian when our neighbours are unsaved, when our family members may be unsaved, when we have friends who are unsaved, when we have a world that is filled with all of these issues and problems which can be solved by God's mind-blowing grace. We can't just sit by and do nothing. Surely, surely that's the most unloving thing we could ever do. Surely that's what was happening in Judges, doing right what's in your own eyes, doing, you know, there's no king, I'll do what I want to do myself. You know, surely we ask to be submissive to God's grace and his glory and share the hope we have. You know, it's December. It's not long before Christmas. It is time to renew your efforts with your three friends that you've been praying for. It's time to renew your intent and purpose to invite people over for a meal, to invite people to our family picnic carol service or to invite them out for a coffee or for a round of golf. Be purposeful in bringing God's mind-blowing grace to others by introducing them to the hope that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we indeed thank you that you are just mind-blowing with your grace that you bestow upon us so undeservingly. Lord, may that grace that we experience daily, moment by moment, may that motivate us to spread your mind-blowing grace to those who so desperately need it. Lord, we are challenged by a world that is filled with idolatry immorality, anarchy, and injustice. But your Lord, your grace abounds. Your grace is stronger. Your love for your people, for humanity, is stronger than anything we can do to offend you. Even though we do with our sin, Lord, you still so graciously love us and provide a way to say, welcome home and may you use us to help bring that hope that we have in Christ Jesus and the gospel to others this Christmas. May we renew our efforts to pray for our three friends that we have been praying for for so long. May we renew our efforts, yes, in the busyness of life, but may we renew our efforts to connect with people who so desperately need you in a meaningful way and to share about the the mind-blowing grace that is in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.